All right, if you can turn to Isaiah 66. Whoa, out of control. <clears throat> we were talking during the session meeting on Thursday where the various groups were in Isaiah, and uh, I discovered that uh, the one that Marty leads is almost done with Isaiah, and the other group that Jerry leads is behind us, the group I lead. I'm amazed. I'm stunned. Quite shocked. Uh, but uh, we'll probably wrap up that uh, in February. Um, but uh, tonight, this morning, whatever this is, we're Isaiah 66. Just the first two verses this morning. So fear not. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father, may we be among those that tremble at your word, that as uh, we listen this morning, we would hear it with seriousness, with attentiveness, with a sense of uh, your authority behind all of it, with a desire to understand that which it means to know you, to know what you have done for us. And what you call us to. And so, uh, may your eyes be upon us this morning. That we might tremble at this your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, our home, the TV, when I'm not around, actually, even when I'm around, is often set to the HGTV because that is relatively safe. And Amy likes to, uh, when she's working on things, like to have that in the background. I prefer to listen to music in the background. Um, but she likes TV for some strange reason. She can't work when there's music. We're different. That's okay. Um, so one of the shows that often is on is House Hunters. And so, you know, what it happens, and I've seen enough of these things, is you have uh, two people and uh, they want to buy a house, and they all have their written criteria, which may not always line up. And if the producer was wise, they usually don't. So that there's going to have to be some trade-off between the two people as to what home they're going to buy. And there's always, when they go into a home, uh, they usually see three, okay? Yeah, the Trinity, right? No, not this Trinity. Um, there's usually things that stand out to them. Usually things that they like and things that they don't like. And as I thought about this passage and its context and where it's going, I thought of house hunters. Because in a sense, God is looking for a house. And there are things that are going to stand out to possible homes that he will like and that he will not like. And so let's think of this. As we begin to think, uh, as we look through this passage, uh, that idea of Jesus looking for a home. 
I think this passage will make a bit of sense to us. The big idea is that Messiah makes his home with those who have nothing to offer, which, of course, is quite counterintuitive. Let's note, first of all, that the Creator does not fix his eyes on human accomplishments. And it's very important that we understand that, that the Creator does not fix his eyes on human accomplishments. Let's keep in mind who Isaiah was as he writes this. He was, of course, a prophet. We see his call in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And that means that what goes on through the power of the Holy Spirit is that Isaiah was brought into the heavenly council. He hears a message and then delivers this oracle to the people of God. And so that's what's happened here. He has gone to heaven and he's, he's been brought back, so to speak, and he's now speaking that which he heard from God's mouth to the people of his day, which, of course, continues to apply to the people of our day. Because our, we are like them, and our situations are in many ways like their situation. And this oracle from God starts, in a sense, with a, an odd way. Heaven is my throne... And the earth is my footstool. We are not meant to picture this, but imagine, we don't know where heaven is. It's not a geographical location, okay? It is God's heavenly abode. It is a place that he has made. It is his throne room. And he says that idea of that is my throne. And what is his footstool? Where is it that he would rest his feet if he had feet? Okay, remember, this is anthropomorphic language. Earth. He's so great, he's so vast, he's so glorious that something from our perspective that is so big as the earth would be so insignificant to him as to be simply his footstool. Isaiah is reminding the people, and God is reminding the people, of his glory and his grandeur, that he sits enthroned as ruler and king. And so this is a picture not just of his glory and grandeur, but of his authority. As Calvin notes, he's not shut up in heaven. Okay? His, his throne may be in heaven, but he is not shut up there, boarded up, limited to there, which is exactly what most people want God to be in heaven. It's okay if he visits here to help me with my problems, but we don't want his authority. We want his authority to remain there. We want to remain autonomous or a law unto ourselves. And so this God speaks. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? In other words, if heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, how can you imagine that you might build a better place for me to rest? Think of the arrogance that sort of goes behind that, because that's the idea they had about what they built. That it was, in a sense, better than what God had already made. They, they thought their human accomplishments, 
the putting together of these stones. And yes, the temple was beautiful. But it was not meant to be an object of boasting before the one who rests his feet upon the earth. It began with a good motivation. We see in 1 Chronicles 28, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. Now, let's think about this for a moment. He wants to build a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Before we can understand that, we have to kind of go back in time. You know, where's our DeLorean when we need it? Okay. But if we were to go back to Eden, that is in a sense the first tabernacle of God upon earth. It was, the earth was itself designed to be a temple. And Eden was sort of the, the mini version of that temple, which was supposed to be extended out to cover the rest of creation. And that's the whole idea of Adam and Eve getting the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Why? So that you can subdue and rule the earth. Spread his glory, spread his authority over all of the earth. And so what happens but that when they sin, they're kind of cast out, separated from the presence of God. And so after the Exodus, as they're in the wilderness journeys, God reveals to Moses the things that he is to make. He shows him the pattern in heaven because Moses was a prophet. And so he went to the heavenly places by the power of the Spirit. He sees the pattern that he's going to make for the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle which is essentially a mini-universe. And that went with them. And so what David was getting at here in in 1 Chronicles 28 is is the idea that there was this promise in Deuteronomy that God would show them a place where they were to, to worship Him, you know, the center of the worship of the people of Israel. But the ark had been traveling. See, a tabernacle is a tent, it's a temporary thing. It goes around wherever you went. And so he's, he's, his idea is, I want to bring it to a place where it can rest, where it can stay. And so the people of God can come and worship him there. And so we see this reflected in things like Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Now come to the ark where we've placed it because he is Holy. And worship him there. The problem is, is that Israel had now rested in the temple. Solomon built it with the materials that his father had started to provide anyway. And now they kind of viewed the temple as a, a object of boasting before God. Look what we have done for you. Shower your blessings on us because of this temple. The temple had become a token of their special status. They viewed it sort of like their rabbit's foot. As long as the temple is there, 
all is well with us. And if we read farther on in 66, we would see that all was not well with them. They thought the multiplication of their sacrifices was sufficient to deal with their sinfulness, their disobedience, and their rebellion, and it was not. But they kept thinking, as long as we have the temple, it's okay. Until 586, when God sent the Babylonians to remove the temple. And we see that when the temple was rebuilt after the Cyrus edict, that Israel fell into the same old trap. Once again, we see in Jesus' day, the temple, the temple, the temple. It's all about the temple. You see, the temple was not for God. It was given to them. It was intended for them. So that they had a place that they could remember that God was dwelling with them. It was a tangible sign of God's dwelling, but they kind of, again, kind of twisted it. This is what sinners do. Okay, we twist God's good gifts, okay? We start to think that God needs what we do, as opposed to remembering that we need what God does. Alec Moyer in his commentary sums this up with, by coming to live in the house, God does not become beholden to those who built it, for he himself is the maker of all. And so we see this picture of God ruling over heaven and earth. He could have spoken and created instantaneously a temple. He did not need them to build it. But they began to think that he did. That somehow their service was important. We see that in the, what we saw in Acts chapter 7. That's, that's part of uh, Stephen's condemnation of the Jews of his time. They kept resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. They resisted even the righteous one. That the Messiah they said they wanted came and he was unwanted and rejected by the people. Paul picks up on this idea in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It is not God who is dependent upon us. It is we who are dependent upon Him. So let's get back to the idea of Eden, tabernacle, temple. What we see is that Jesus is the living temple. Tear down this temple, he said, speaking of his own himself, and I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his resurrection. So Jesus is the new and living and eternal temple for God's people, and we are stones in that temple. As Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're living stones joined together, and we, the church, form this living temple in which Christ dwells. 
And so it's not about big buildings. But what we see through this, and maybe I'm repetitive, I don't know, is that the human heart is full of pride and expects God to love it. One of my former classmates, who's now a seminary professor, um, posted a quote from one of his students that he thought was really good and I thought was really bad. This person dwelling upon the fact of Christ dwelling in us says, What a beautiful place my soul must be if the king would dwell there. Now maybe I'm misunderstanding what they are saying by that. I see pride. I see, you know, house hunters. The people who find the perfect house. As though her house, her heart is the perfect house for God. It has all the amenities that God would want, so to speak. That it's beautiful in and of itself. The human heart, it so clamors for God's attention like neglected children. Look at me. Look at me. And we build these buildings that are all about me and not really about him. There's nothing wrong with big buildings. Okay? Not worried about that. But sort of the... Like, I walked past one yesterday. There's fountains and food courts and all this kind of stuff. That's really not what it's about. That's not what it's intended to be. That's about us. He ends, so to speak, with this thought that all these things my hand has made. In other words, God is responsible. He is the one who has worked for providence. He's not dependent upon you for what he needs. So God's glory and his authority are revealed. He's not bound by the tiny homes that we build. Okay? Just as he's not shut up in heaven, he's not shut up in a building we might put together. So secondly, God fixes his eyes on the humble and afflicted. See, in, in light of what you know, I've said about the first verse and a half and what I've mentioned about what follows in Isaiah 66, you might think that all seemed lost for Judah. That they had no hope. And if we think about ourselves and our own pride, we might think that all might be lost for us. But it's not. For he says, But this is the one to whom I will look. It has the idea of God setting his eyes on something or someone, that he's fixing his eyes. Just as we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the idea here is that God fixes his eyes on particular people. And that means that what he says next is very important for us. 
What is he looking for in a home, so to speak? What is it, what's going to catch his eye that he might want to dwell there? This is a positive look. Okay, but let's not think it is an earned look. Because remember, this is all within the context of that we have nothing to offer the Creator. And the first thing he says, He who is humble. The connotation is one who is afflicted, who is poor, who is defenseless. Kind of the person who has no hope in themselves. Who doesn't have that idea of, I am smart and people like me. I can do this. He's not looking for the little engine that could. He's looking for the engine who knows it can't. The humble, the afflicted. Of course, my strange mind goes to places like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. To remember what it is to be afflicted as Arthur and his knights with their coconuts come upon the people digging in the the dirt wanting to know who lives in the castle so that they might have more allies in the search for the grail and they find that these people say that they are, uh, I can't remember what it was, a commune. Yes. They had no king. They had no lord. They, They served, you know, on a rotational basis. Okay? You know, lord of the month. And then of course, they start to shake these peasants and see the violence inherent in the system. Look, I'm being oppressed. That's the idea. People who have no defense against those who are more powerful than them. They were not knights. They were not kings. They were ordinary people. Defenseless. Sometimes it's hard for us to connect with as middle-class Americans. Most of us are. Some of us are not. There are some of us uh, who knows what what it's like to struggle financially. Uh, I'm fairly well off now, so to speak, um, in that I don't have to worry about where dinner comes from tomorrow, except the fact that I'm I'm a bachelor this week. Um, I've got a plan. I've got a plan, so... Um, But we're not sort of living day to day, most of us. Most of us. But we can't think of this in simply economic terms. Uh, Jesus helps us in the Sermon on the Mount in terms of the Beatitudes, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so this affliction is not necessarily seen in simply economic or political terms if you're the oppressed people of the month according to the news media but it really has more the idea of people who recognize that they are also afflicted and oppressed spiritually they're oppressed by their flesh which seeks sin they're oppressed by the devil who wants to tempt them the world that wants to either seduce them or destroy them, depending on the mood of the day. That is their affliction. 
We have to remember that well-off, reasonably secure people, because I mean, we don't live like in the Middle East, right? That these people can be poor in spirit, that we are plagued, that in a sense, what Mike's saying about Ken Steele the other night is true of all of us. Okay? The heart of the Grinch before his transformation dwells within all who are outside of Christ. So, he looks to the humble. He also looks and, and contrite in spirit. This is one who is stricken. And it can mean to be physically stricken or emotionally stricken. And the idea here is that of broken people. Okay? We're, our humility points to our sinfulness as people. Uh, this, this, the strickenness points to, I think, our brokenness as people. Some people don't like that idea of brokenness. They think it takes away, like it's a substitute for our sinfulness, but I think it complements our sinfulness. But these are people who can't heal themselves. They've been wounded deeply by the sin of others and perhaps even by their own sin. So they're contrite in spirit. But both nouns here, the humble and the contrite, point us to people who cannot impress. They are not spiritual successes. They recognize that really they're spiritual failures. That's who they are. But God doesn't just fix His eyes on them as if they're simply to be pitied. We see that in reality, He dwells in them with an eye toward restoring them. For instance, he, Psalm 51 continues this idea, or has this similar idea, of it's not the sacrifices He, he, re, he rejoices in, okay? He's not pleased with all of these the burnt offerings, but... In verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Most likely written by the same man who wanted to build the temple. What he knew what God was really after was this broken and contrite spirit. In Psalm 149, we see the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Psalm 34, the Lord is near, not to the people who have it all together, He's near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Now let's get a little closer to Isaiah 66. Remember what we read in Isaiah 57? God talks about how exalted He is, how he's holy, that he dwells in a high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly or humble spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so he dwells with the humble and the contrite to give them life. When we're humble and contrite, we feel like, we feel like we're dead. <laughs> or we feel like we're going to die. We feel crushed. And yet he comes to revive, to restore, to renew. And so Jesus is not looking, he's not at house hunters looking for the perfect place to live. He's more like rehab addicts looking for a place to fix. He's looking for a junker. He's looking for a hovel. He's looking for the termite-infested ramshackle shack. Not the beautiful palace that will cost him millions of dollars. And he wants to make it beautiful. And so it's not what a beautiful place my soul must be if the king would dwell there. It's what a beautiful place my soul will become because he dwells there. Because he will make it beautiful. And so Jesus comes to kind of gather the humble, to gather the contrite in order to spread God's wing over them, His wing of protection. And you do need to think of that mother bird with the wing over the little children to protect them from the elements. Because Jesus used that image. People, even the most desperate of us, can sometimes struggle to admit that they are in that position because they find it humiliating. But that is actually the path to life. Jack Miller, for instance, because God always comes to the humble, to those who have nothing to brag about and nothing to glory in, so uh, to those who know they are sinners. Those are the ones to whom he comes. But it's not just at the beginning. It's not just at conversion that they know this. Think of, consider this from Calvin. Our want and poverty are so great, our imperfection presses us so hard on every side and so burdens us that we must all, even the most godly. Okay, get that part. He's talking about even the most godly among us. Okay, have cause at every hour to lament and sigh to God and to call upon Him in all humility. You never outgrow your need for the Gospel. While you are to grow in godliness, you do not outgrow your need for Jesus and His righteousness. How I wish it were not so. But it is. And so, the people with whom he dwells are those who recognize the mess. So this is who I am. And you're the only one, Jesus, who can fix it. Because I can't. And so God finds the humble and broken heart to make His home there to make it glorious. 
Thirdly, we see that God fixes His eyes on those who tremble at His Word. The third group, to those to whom I will look, are those who tremble at My Word. We see this a similar thought in Jeremiah 5. Do you not fear Me? declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before Me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. As Creator. Once again, that, that idea of Creator. Don't you fear Me? Don't you tremble in My presence? Job certainly did. For a while, he's like, God, explain this to me. And then God showed up and he said, I repent. I shut my mouth. I've had enough. I now realize who you are and who I am. And I need to shut up. We see in a similar passage in Ezra, chapters 9 and 10, the same idea comes up, that this the person who trembles or shakes shakes in reverence or awe at God's Word. Ezra 9, for instance, then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithful faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So he's talking about there's this, this group of people okay, that have gathered around him Precisely because they recognized their faithlessness in returning. They trembled at God's word. They knew they were guilty. They knew they needed God's help. That is the person who pays attention to God's word, who listens attentively. Because they recognize who is speaking. They recognize it's the creator and ruler of everything. It's not a stewardess. See, Thursday morning, if all goes well, according to God's plan, okay, I'm intended to be on a flight that goes to New York, and I'm going to hear the words of a stewardess. And what I'm going to do is tune them out. Because, you know, I can't count the number of times I've flown. I know the spiel. Okay? And while it's not very dangerous on a plane, because I know where the exits are and all that jazz, I, I know where the life preserver is, even though I'm not going to fly over any large bodies of water on the way to New York. Don't know why they need to tell me that every time. Okay? Don't they know where I'm flying? But that's what we do with God. <laughs> Dude, I can swim a river. <laughs> I could see if I flew over Lake Michigan. That's kind of big, but I'm not flying over Lake Michigan. So, we can't tune him out. We do to our own peril. The trembling person is not one who is, as we see later on in this passage, you know. Uh, killing all the extra sacrifices, who's focused on, on uh, resorting to these endless sacrifices, but he's one who looks for mercy. So let's think about this in the framework of the coming Messiah, you know, for Isaiah, the one who has come for us. 
But we see that Jesus lived by the Word of God for us. He did more than tremble before the Word of God. He did not do tremble because of guilt, but he recognized the authority of his Father, submitted to the authority of his Father, and obeyed the authority of his Father for us. He performed the will of the Father completely for us in order to gain righteousness for us because we have none. And this Jesus also died upon the cross paying the price for the fact that we didn't tremble at the Word of God. For the fact that we were rebels, He paid the penalty. He bore the curse for us. This is partially why Jeremiah Burroughs notes in his um, large number of sermons on this text, so you only get one. If you tremble at God's word, you shall be comforted. So fear not, little flock. The Messiah who makes us his home, then, as I said, works in us so that we grow in reverence uh, f- towards his word. He, he transforms, he renews our relationship with God's authority where we who before were rebellious, we were just like the people that Nathan chases down in the streets <laughs> when it comes to God's law, lawbreakers. He transforms us so that even though we don't keep it perfectly until glorification, we are able to read Psalm 119 and say, this is what I want. I want to delight in God's Word. He transforms our relationship with God's authority. We, we see it as love instead of God being the cosmic killjoy. And so while God does not dwell in us because we have beautiful souls, He dwells in us to make our souls beautiful. All right. So, God's not looking for all the amenities in a home that you and I might look for. He's not looking for the large kitchen, the large closets, the big backyard. He has no need because He is Creator and Ruler of all things. And so He shops, so to speak, with mercy in mind. He shops looking for the shabby, broken, sinful heart that knows it's shabby, sinful, and broken. Because these are the ones that He plans to make beautiful to reveal Himself as Savior and Sanctifier. And so Jesus, the Messiah, who does this is often, unfortunately, unwanted because pride opposes His goals. Because most people seek their own glory, not His. And so this text calls for us to humble humble ourselves under His mighty hand that in due time He may exalt us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in addition to being holy, which You are, which should cause us to tremble, You are also merciful, 
fact, you are. For you don't come to those who have it all together, but you, ha- you come to those who have almost nothing together. So that we don't have to pretend, and we don't have to play. As you see right through us, and we can be honest with you, and we can start to be honest with each other. So, Father, begin to work by grace that into us. That honesty and transparency. That humility. That we would be able to recognize our own brokenness and continually cry out to you to fix it. That we indeed might grow in faith, hope, and love. Because you are the one who is at work in us. That we tremble because it is you who works in us to will and act according to your good purpose. So help us to humble ourselves before you. Because it does not come naturally to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.